Howdy. How's it going? Going well. We had a cool guest on today. Yeah, this is a this is a subject that we've often thought we must do and we've finally done, which is sports and gender. And we've got a brilliant person to speak to. Um, Coach Blade, she's going to be speaking in Denver and you can still get your streaming tickets, I think, maybe, but you'll certainly be able to see it in the future if you can't. And, you know, she, she she's she's doing a presentation in Denver, like when sports meets trans ideology or gender ideology. And yeah. it's well named because she has been there for decades. Mm-hmm. She, 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 she's a real um, expert in elite sports and you get, it just shines from her that she's just into she's into the kind of concept of sporting chance, you know, fairness yeah. in sport. And that's why she's such a brilliant representative to speak about fairness in sport in this context. Yeah, she herself was an athlete, a very elite level athlete, and then she's been coaching for decades. And what's interesting is Dr. Blade also lived all around the world. She lived in Nigeria. Yeah. She lived in Iran. She, she's lived in all these different cultures and grew up down by the Amazon. I like had this yeah, extraordinary she, she grew up in Bolivia. I mean, she tells us this. I mean, you'll <laughs> see our faces. The story that we launched with about her childhood was like absolutely remarkable. Yeah. So yeah. she she really surprised me because I've been following her work for a while, but there's so many interesting aspects of her story. And we got to ask Coach Blade, like all of our burning questions about trans and sports. And if you stick around for our listener community section, we also asked her about this new trend of non-binary athletes and making like third sports categories. Because this is often argued as like, this is the great solution. Just make a third category. Mm -hmm. But as Coach Blade explains, like there are a lot of problems with that too. And we just talked about the kind of fairness in sports and what happens when you introduce, um, you know, gender hormones and does that force other athletes to start doping even if they're not trans? Like it was a super interesting conversation. So before we get into it, we just want to ask if you're on YouTube um, and you (laughs) like watching us here, please like and subscribe to our channel. We have have awesome comments. I have to say smash that subscribe button (laughs) because I've been laughed at. Stella kind of had a little bit of fun poked at her in the comments on Twitter by our friend Laura Becker. But now you just have to say it every time. So say it again. Smash that subscribe button. I am down with it. Stella got like her 15 minutes of fame on TikTok and now she's like a big time big time YouTuber. Okay, here, I'm going to read about a coach Blade. Dr. Linda Blade is a former Canadian champion from 1986 and a full scholarship NCAA All-American in track and field. As a chartered professional coach, Linda has worked internationally for over 30 years with hundreds of athletes. Her expertise is extended to leadership roles, provincial president of Athletics Alberta, where she developed sex-based eligibility guidelines, which actually we talk about today. It was really interesting. She's the co-author of a book called Unsporting, How Trans Activism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport. She's a collaborator in the establishment of the International Consortium on Female Sports, and Linda has been publicly advocating for fairness and safety for female athletes since 2018. So she was a phenomenal guest. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Coach Linda Blade. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. 
and we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi, Coach Blade and Stella. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hey, Linda. It's really nice to meet you. Uh, you know, we Stella knows you because you're going to be speaking at the Genspect conference. So you guys yeah. have been in touch. <laughs> this is my first time meeting with you. I'm really excited yes. to talk with you today. Yeah. Um, Stella, what do you think? Should we ask Linda to just take us back in time to the beginning, to the <laughs> childhood years, where, which is where we tend to start? <sighs> Yeah, uh, absolutely. I do think that uh, we haven't really gone there with sports and gender. And right. I think it has become bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm so pleased to have you on so that you can kind of, you've got the long perspective because you can tell us the whole thing. So I, I think we've yeah. got the right woman to, to present. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you lead us, Linda. <laughs> yes, it's a big part of my life. Uh, sport itself has been a big part of my life right from the beginning. And I, I, uh, I have to say, even though I live in Canada and Canadian, I, I started out in South America and I was I was a daughter of missionary uh, religious uh, Bible translators who were learning the language of the Inca Empire, you know, Machu Picchu and all that. They have three dialects of that language and they were helping, like having a bunch of people from different um, religions and, and denominations together as a team translating the Bible from Spanish into Quechua. And, I was just one of these little kids who was born up in the Andes, Andean highlands uh, in the adobe hut. And I, I was running around the streets playing soccer, football with the boys. And the other missionaries didn't really like it too much, but my parents were quite supportive. Um, they, 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 oh, some of the years I was in the Amazon rainforest because there were other projects going on down in the Amazon. So I'm truly an Amazon woman. Uh, wow. And, uh, yeah, so between being barefoot in the Amazon pads and trails and and uh, swimming in, in uh, Oxbow Lakes that had piranhas on the other side to uh, going uh, into the highlands and playing football in the streets with the boys. I mean, I was just I was just this ragamuffin girl. Like, I, <laughs> I just loved sports. I loved playing outside. And I had a brother who was close to me, so we were always partners in crime, always, like, getting into fights. Like, I, I was just this terrible little girl who was not gender conforming at all. And even when it, if the, the odd times I would go show up to church, like if I was training later when I was starting to train for Bolivian um, sports clubs and track teams, you know, I'd, tr I'd go for a run in the morning, I'd be all dusty and, and I'd throw a skirt over my shorts and sit in the back pew of the church. And it was all like dirty and dusty and people, I don't know. I was just, I don't know. It wasn't even being a rebel. It was just being me. I, I just love being outside and playing. And I was so grateful. Really, honestly, my parents put up with a lot of criticisms, I think, of me. And they never let it sort of stick to me. They just said, well, that's her life. It's not her fault we're down here in South America doing this stuff. And uh, they let me do it. And I, and I became champion of Bolivia by 15 before we came to Canada. Like, I was actually national champion. And I did the South American circuit with the ladies and... I mean, the very first time, uh, my first trip away from home was with uh, this the Bolivian team, and we were. It was so bad because like the the men got to sleep in the bunk beds, and we had to put our sleeping bags on the floor, like we of a classroom, 
And then we had to get up that morning and make tea and and breakfast for the men. Like it was just ridiculous. Uh, oh <laughs> I my mean, gosh. I, I, you know, I, I mean, right away, like I understood. Mm-hmm. Um, even though my parents didn't really treat me that way, I kind of right away got the message that in most places, even if you're going to be in sports, you're going to kind of be a second class citizen if you're a woman. Yeah. And it, it just started from there. And I was lucky then to come back to Canada for high school. And then right away I got, I was good enough, but right away I got recruited into the NCAA and got a chance to have, you know, I was poor as dirt. I mean, I, I, I'm glad I got that scholarship so I could get my education. I really, really grateful to the Title IX legislation. I came in about 10 years after that legislation in the 80s. And yeah, and then you know, just so many different experiences. And then during the 80s, of course, that was when the doping was happening with East Germans. And then I was on the Canadian team. I was Canadian champion. And then I would be going over to Europe. And, you know, one year I'd be beating some girl. And then a year later, she had her voice had dropped like an mm. octave. And now she is beating me by thousand, a thousand points. Like it just, it just was so frustrating. And you're commit- talking about like tr- track and field events, right? Like, can yeah. you explain like what, what were you competing in? Okay, so you know Bruce Jenner uh, did the decathlon, which is ten events, and so it's like best overall athlete all around. Okay. And women do women do the heptathlon, which is seven events, um, and so you're the best sort of all around, you know, uh, performer. And I was doing the heptathlon, so I did all the different events. Which are? Can you just tell? Okay, I'll ex- okay. So yeah. there, you start day one is 100 meter hurdles, shot put, high jump. 200 meter race okay. and then the second day it's it's basically it's long jump javelin spear throwing and okay. then the uh half mile race so it's speed endurance throwing jumping all the different things so just to test different aspects of your what i call now is a sports scientist biomotor abilities mm-hmm. and i did end up becoming a phd in, in kinesiology and sports science uh, but that was, of course, in the 90s. That was after all of my career in, in terms of being an athlete. And then later became a coach. And then even later than that, in 2014, became president of track and field, uh, president of the board of the Track and Field Association here where I live in the province of Alberta. And that's where I hit the wall on this gender stuff because I had to be on committees where they were pushing a new policy. And so that's kind of my that's kind of my long sort of journey into this whole gender um you know struggle could, could i come in there um it'd yeah. be great if you could um outline because i remember the 80s and the east germans and it'd be mm-hmm. great if you could tell me your first experiences and your kind of how you noticed that arc of if for people who don't know the there was a, dir- a doping scandal of testosterone yeah. for east german athletes that everybody yeah. was aware of. It wasn't even hiding in plain sight. It was in plain sight, as far as I can right. see. Even for a young kid that I was watching, mm-hmm. you were there, you were competing. So do you remember when you first, what what was the talk in the locker rooms and what was it like back then? Well, even when I was still sort of in the late 70s, I was just coming back home. I, I was Bolivian champion in South America. Even then we'd start hearing about these things. Uh, and I actually had a German coach who had been brought to Bolivia as like a foreign aid from Germany to, to this poor country of Bolivia. And suddenly I had one of the best coaches in the world. So he was a German coach. And, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about stuff. He wouldn't talk too much about it. But I mean, 
you know, already I had become aware of how, why are the Germans so good and everybody else not so good, especially East Germans. And I knew the difference between East Germany and West Germany. But anyway, when I got back to Canada and then I was on the national team in the 80s, um, that was just around the time when the testing had started to happen um, for those drugs. But we also knew that the people who were good at it are good at cheating knew how to how to to beat the tests and that was the frustrating thing and for me personally like obviously like every track and field athlete my goal was to make the olympic team and i was the best in the country on and off with this other girl but we were the best and i was definitely aiming for the 1988 olympic games which uh was um the doping actually caused me to miss the Olympics because, oh. yeah, because what happened was in Canada, we had like the world track and field world. Uh, they have a list like in the heptathlon in my event, mm -hmm. you were listed because you have performances. It's the beauty of track and field is it's just measurements of distance and time and speed. Like you have the people's performances and they put them on a, lo a list. Right. And so if you were, Canada just decided they'd make it easy on themselves and just say, we won't really have an Olympic trials per se. Like if you have to be within the top 15 of that list to make the team. But the problem is if there's 25 people from East Germany and, uh, and Russia, a Soviet Union cheating and they're, they're listed on that list, you don't have a chance because you're actually down below that. You know, like they, you're not ranked as high as them yeah. because they, and a lot of those performances were actually done in countries where there, like in moments where we knew there was no test at that competition. And yet the international uh, governing body kept putting them on this list because they'd find the result and put them on this list. And so I trained super, super hard that year trying to improve without doping, but trying, and I ended up hurting myself because, you know, you push it too hard. Mm -hmm. Sport is always about pushing well, that limit. Balancing. Mm -hmm. And, yeah and and actually even now in my whole career like um the kind of fitness i do is sport performance fitness well people say what's the difference between sport performance fitness and regular health related fitness and the point is you're pushing people mm -hmm. to the edge so basically if if falling if we would say that falling off a cliff is getting injured my job even today is to push somebody as close to that edge without letting them fall yeah. off right yeah, and mm -hmm. i fell off the cliff and got hurt yeah. and the reason i did was because i was trying really so so hard i was training five and six hours a day trying to get up on that list and it just didn't work because they were all cheating and then when my my compatriot ben johnson then he got caught doping he you was did. on that team and he got caught doping, and then that was like the big scandal. Huge. Uh, which is, uh, I'll explain as we go along, but there was a direct link from him getting caught doping to what happened all these years later in terms of the gender thing. How? And so there is a link there. Like well, I explained it. I yeah, so I explained it in my book on sporting. So I'll just show it now. I'll plug mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote the book with Barbara Kay, journalist Barbara Kay, and wow. wrote that in. And, uh, 2021 and it's called unsporting um so basically what happened was after ben johnson got caught and it was like this massive global scandal canadian guy in the 100 meters yes. he won the 100 
and the hundred meters was like you know obviously the big event and he beat carl lewis and then he got caught and um basically so the canadians were so you know obviously feeling like embarrassed and and astonished that we got caught us (laughs) nice canadians like meanwhile the east germans had been cheating all this time and so they never get caught but we got caught and like we're the bad guys and so and around 2003 like things went until like various committees and and investigations and finally they set up this thing called this non-government agency basically not-for-profit called the canadian center for ethics and sport so basically the the ccs their job was to ensure their only mandate was to ensure that Canadians would not cheat. And so their whole message was their, like they would do the doping control even on national team members. They would go around the country, you know, giving lectures about how you shouldn't cheat. And when I was president of track and field in Alberta, and I went to my national meeting in 2018, and, they, and I found out that we are now supposed to consider a policy that were meant, man, it was the most extreme policy, honestly. No surgery, nor, nor no hormonal mm-hmm. mitigation. A man could come one day and say he's a woman and compete, and then he could compete as a man the next day. It was complete self-ID they were pushing. And of course, knowing the difference between men and women on our national records, mm-hmm. I was looking at around my colleagues at the table, and I found out that that CCES, that entity that was supposed to be telling Canadians not to cheat, that was the entity pushing this policy and telling everybody that you're bigots if you didn't let males to self-identify in women's sports, which is cheating. I mean, it's like the one entity that was supposed to be non-cheating and fair sport was the one telling all the sports that if you don't do this, then you're hateful and bigoted. And like somebody captured that organization and just the very one that was supposed to not. Yeah. I mean, it was like bizarre. Because uh, knowing that that went from our worst scandal to su- now them pushing a self-ID, I-, I couldn't even believe it. Wow. We'd like to jump in here really quick and offer up a thank you to Genspect, one of our sponsors. Genspect is an international organization that offers a healthy approach to sex and gender. And they're hosting the Bigger Picture Conference in Denver, Colorado this November. Be sure to listen to our episode number 134 to hear about all the amazing speakers lined up and visit genspect.org to order tickets. And if you can't make it in person, online tickets are available. We'd also like to give a shout out to GETA, Gender Exploratory Therapy Association. If you're looking for a therapist for yourself or your child, check out the GETA directory. And if you're a clinician who is questioning the affirmation model and you're looking for resources and community, please consider joining Geta today. Visit genderexploratory.com to learn more. Well, you know, something you've talked about before is that actually ever since the Olympics had women's divisions, there were males trying to get in. This is in the early 1900s. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that seems to be related to what you're describing here. Yeah. Like there are always these l- loopholes people are trying to create, even ethics committees, unfortunately. But can you talk to us about that context? Because I feel like for a lot of people, myself included, I had no idea that that was ever an issue. 
And I thought that this was a really contemporary thing around the trans debate, but actually you've said it's not. So can you tell us about that? So right away, like at least track and field, the first Olympics we were in was in Amsterdam in in 1928. So even though the Olympics started in 1900, track and field for women wasn't in there until 28. But as soon as that happened, like even in the early 1930s, before we had to all stop competing because of World War II and Nazis and all that, um, already there were males who were coming in and it was obvious that they were men competing in women's in the women's event so right away there had the international olympic committee had to deal with the fact that there would be certain men trying to get into women's events just because they wanted the notoriety or getting a medal or maybe getting a prize Mm -hmm. and so there were a number of ways that um first of all it was just like you had to go get a doctor's clearance to attend the olympic games but then eventually uh oh and there was only one time in 1960s that they did the old nude parade where the all the female athletes had to walk in front of a panel of judges naked but that was just one time and that time is used all the time to say we should never test for sex verification no after that time they did what they the you know like the old cheek swab like mm-hmm, that, where you get mm-hmm. like you get a Q-tip and you get a piece of buccal cells, and they're looking for um, the bar bodies, which is you know going to have one black dot of the two XX chromosomes, um, and that was used even during my time. I I did a you know sex verification test for certain competitions uh, was nothing like nothing compared to the doping control where you have to pee you know like hundred cc's into a cup and that takes a long time when you're dehydrated and like the doping control is more invasive than doing the sex verification. But somehow by the nineties, um, well, they did one more try to d- upgrade from um, the bar body test to like cheeks sw- from the cheek swab to blood testing at the Atlanta Olympics in 1996. And so the blood testing involved, you know, looking for the X, the SRY gene, like the genetics. So that was the time when they, went into trying to do that and it was you know a huge number of samples had to be taken and lots of athletes tested and they did find seven or eight males in that group but they let them compete anyway for some reason and the olympics the olympic officials by 1999 published an article in a in a journal a science journal saying that it was too expensive, too inconvenient and it made the female athletes feel too uncomfortable so they're going to stop doing that to could test, I, they're going to they're going to stop yeah. verification altogether. Sorry, could, could I point out something? I remember reading in the Hel- Helen Joyce book, Trans, yeah. that you know, women with intersex conditions, often often known as DSDs, are overrepresented in elite women's sports by a factor of a hundred and forty, and it was a, an astonishing statistic that made me review the entire sports scenario because then I suddenly realized all of those when I was growing up all when I was a kid like I was really into sports all those talk of oh she's a man she's a man there was so many of certain sports athletes yeah and then when I looked at what the Olympics did to figure out whether somebody was a woman or not you you know what I mean they tried to do it by the the like you said the parade the body They've yeah. tried to do it by testosterone levels. They've tried to do yeah. it by chromosome levels. They've never found a way because of the fact that elite sports is very, very overrepresented by women 
with elevated testosterone because of their intersex condition, it seems to me, and I put it to you, that it's it's almost an impossible job to figure out how are we going to differentiate between who can p- compete and who cannot? Because some people with intersex conditions have really high testosterone. They do have a natural, mm-hmm. you know. Well, if you're XX with a DSD, yeah, um, I think that that's just bad luck for the rest of us. If you're if you're a woman and you have naturally high levels of testosterone, like endogenous testosterone. Yeah. I mean, tough luck for us because you're a woman and you're intersex, but you know, you're seen as somehow intersex, but you're two X chromosomes, female, no XY, no, no SRY gene. I think at the end of the day, we're just going to have to be put up with that because that's a kind of unfairness, but it's a natural unfairness because cool. they're female. And so I just a natural don't, variation that exists. It is a natural variation with, right. within the female population. Right. And so right. lucky you, you got, you know, you have, I don't know, hyperandrogenous, whatever. Uh, and, and basically I just don't believe that you should be taking drugs to suppress something. Mm-hmm. You're I either agree. in that, ca- you're, you're yeah. either in that category or you're not in that category. And if it's but endogenously it- produced, then that, but then the, it, what the problem we're having is the DSD males who do have an SRYG, exactly. they are in there. And those are the ones that we need the screening for because it's not fair if they're, they have an unfair advantage because they have, it's like genetic, it's like genetic cheating. Like you're just, you've got an extra thing there. Well, they're male and they have uh, an unfair advantage while the others are female and have exactly. arguably. A, a, a yes. natural advantage, yeah. A natural yeah. advantage, but I would say the female DSD. I would be, you know, I've uh, in my I've changed my position. I thought in the past you should mitigate their testosterone, but truthfully, now that I've seen it and I thought it through, if we're going to say like that's the dividing line is the chromosome and the 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 SRY gene presence of the gene that's active, it has to be active then uh, that has to be our dividing line. And within that, if it's endogenous, away you go, right? But we should not be allowing people who have the male gene in the female competition. That's where you draw the line and as far as I'm concerned. But the thing is, the IOC just, you know, basically chickened out and they didn't want to, they didn't want to have to police it. So by 2000, they had thrown out the screening entirely. And then by 2003, in the Stockholm, Stockholm consensus, the group of men just decided based on one doctor's um, research where he measured, <clears throat> Dr. Louis Guran measured a bunch of transsexuals before surgery and then after as far as some of their strength and stuff. And um, and then Dr. Emma Hilton talked about it in one of her presentations, but by 2003, they figured that, oh, there wouldn't be that many. Oh, it's okay. We could let them compete mm-hmm. with women if if they have had the surgery and he actually i have the quote here somewhere he said so the conclusion was okay they did know that the transsexuals would still be having a competitive advantage uh having more strength and all of the male advantages like larger bodies nothing changes in terms of your lung size and and all that heart size clearly you're not going to shrink your heart just because you had a part of your anatomy removed right so you're still going to have advantages but he said this when they decided to allow transsexuals in 2003, they said, depending on the levels of arbitrariness one wants to accept, it is justifiable that reassigned males can compete with other women. 
So it really wasn't based on science. It was just arbitrary. Wow. And it was based on a social imperative. Like that, that was there. And then the interesting thing is, then in 2015, suddenly even the requirement for surgery was was lifted by the IOC. And the question is kind of why people, that was like a mystery because the gatekeeping, at least surgical requirement was pretty restrictive. But then all of a sudden you wouldn't require surgery anymore. Now anybody can self-identify. And at that time, in 2015, you just had to lower your testosterone to a certain level, which 10 nanomoles per liter down, like from 30 to 10 but 10 is still way higher than any woman. Like most women, the top range is 2.5 or something like that. So it's still going to be unfair to women. But I know that there was a male transsexual who was trying to sue. He was a cyclist. And because he had been, uh, he had had a gonadectomy, he didn't have testosterone, circulating testosterone. So when he tried to train in cycling for the women's races, he didn't have... Uh, enough testosterone to recover from his workout. So he said it was a medical necessity <clears throat> that he should be allowed to have, like, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, um, therapeutic use exemption, TUE, to take some testosterone so he could still compete as a woman. Like, it's just unbelievable. Like, he, he really, he, he realized, you know, why didn't they just say, look, you've had a gonadectomy. <laughs> you don't have circulating testosterone. Clearly, a male body needs testosterone. So just take testosterone and go back in the men's division. That's would have been the answer. Yeah. But they wanted to he wanted to keep competing as a female. So they that's where it led to that whole yeah. case led to, to the 2015 lifting of this of the surgical requirement. I wanted to touch on something before we started, I was having a conversation with one of our producers who was saying something like, you know. Athletes always make decisions about various things, whether it's in their kind of professional life or their personal life. Like a woman decides, to, like a female athlete, let's say she decides to have a baby. That's going to necessitate that she take a season off or something. And, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, powerlifting and bodybuilding sports. There's a tested and untested division. If you decide that you want to use performance enhancing drugs, you cannot compete against the, un the, the tested athletes because you know they're naturals and so it's like so interesting how s these trans athletes who also seem to be activists they want to have their cake and eat it too they want to make yeah. these decisions about medical interventions with their bodies despite the fact that they're athletes and then they also expect for everyone to bend the rules around them because of those individual decisions they made and like can you yeah. just talk a little bit about that especially as a coach like you have athletes under your care who you have to advise about like different decisions they make and what will the trade-offs be and what is this going to mean for your next season? Like talk a little bit about that from a, the coach's perspective or from a, you know, athlete's perspective. Yeah. Well, it didn't make sense to me from the very first time I saw the policy that was on the table and I called the, the CEO of this Canadian center for ethics and sport. And I asked him like, Paul, what is going on? Like, I'm looking at this document. None of the other men from the other, you know, the other presidents are telling me anything. Like, why are we trying to do this? Why is your organization who's supposed to be your only, you know, Paul, you know that testosterone it gives people an advantage, which is why you do your doping control. And then why are you allowing male bodies? Are you saying that male bodies can compete against female? 
And all he would do was clearly ideological because throughout that entire phone conversation, he kept saying, um, well, you know, we have to, we have to be, you know, profiled safe, safety and inclusion and equity. And I said, it's not safe because if there's a man Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. in a contact sport, it's not, you know, it's not inclusive because if there's men and women's finals, they're going to exclude the women from the medal. So it's opposite of that. And it's obviously not equitable because it's not fair. And you know, it's not fair. And he just kept saying, no, no, we have to be safe, you know, inclusive. Like he, he would, he would not talk to me like a normal yeah. human being. So I knew yeah. that right away. So anyway, as a coach, um, you know, I just, it blew my mind because everything we try to teach athletes, this was against that, those principles, those, you, the whole point of being an athlete and, and, and or the, one of the values of and, and advantages of being an athlete was is clearly that you learn how to have discipline and you learn how to have foresight and and you have to plan and you do have to have your you know all of the sequence and of and strategies how you're going to win and and do it fairly and how um and even like that's why i would say title nine in the states has helped in the american society like all those soccer moms and it's helped this american culture so much in this in the sense of women now you know a huge amount of like it's something like 90 95 percent of women who are executive executives in these big companies have all had sports in their background why because it gives you confidence Mm -hmm. it gives you you know all of those things so all of the learning how to even lose properly having the confidence to lose and then say well i'll try harder next time or y'all find out so when you when you have a paradigm where um, and this is my concern as a coach. If you have a paradigm where you're trying to teach your athletes all these different skill sets, um, like emotionally, ethically, uh, physically, and none of those rules apply to the other person, yeah. What you know what you're doing to the the female cohort is basic. You're actually doing the opposite of what sport is normally empowering to women and girls. What you're really doing is the opposite. You're teaching them learned helplessness. Yeah. Because they don't, they know they don't have a chance, yeah. and yeah. that that is going to be utterly destructive in their entire lives. Like whether they, they'll they'll have no confidence in knowing that the the system is going to treat them fairly, or they won't have the confidence to say I'll try something. And, and but there's even no way to know. Like let's say you lose to a male, how do you self assess? Like, how do you even say like, okay, because an advantage of being an athlete is to say, well, okay, so that person beat me when I was running the corner, they passed me. So obviously I got to improve my curve running. I need to improve. Yeah. uh, um, Or like if I was a high jumper, I need to hold my hip a little longer over the bar. I have to. But if somebody comes along and just has the worst technique, and this is what we're seeing a lot of these men who are coming into women's sports, like even the cyclists, they're telling me they have the worst form. They're not even technically great. They're just winning because they have better bodies. And so as a female, you have no ability to self-assess and have a strategy to improve yourself. And could I ask, what is the kind of morale among the girls like who are actually on the field? Are they generally just nodding along? Are they responding like you did in the 80s, which is effectively overtraining? I have, yeah. you know, I just need to work hard. Trying to overcompensate. Or, yeah. or, or are they are they quite privately furious about what's going on? Because this is a form privately of Privately furious. Are they? Privately furious, yes. And 
and um, some of them self-excluding, like they don't want to deal with it anymore. Um, we have one athlete in Canada who's on the Team Canada and choosing to speak out, and it was only from this past year, April Hutchinson, who's the power lifter, and her association's first response was to try to discipline her, like subject her to disciplinary action because she's speaking out and and violating the code of conduct. You're supposed to put the sport in a good light, you know. Um, but the male who's in her competition, he goes on Instagram and starts bragging about why are women so bad at this? Like, why am I winning? And like, like he's constantly trying to gaslight the women and not just, if you just shut up and compete, that'd be one thing that'd even be bad. But he goes on there and tries to demean women that he gets competing with saying they have a little T-Rex arms. It's unbelievable. And she's been trying. So our international consortium on female sport, which is an umbrella group of all the different sports, uh, women's sports uh, advocacy groups, like fair play for women, you know, icons women in the States. We're all trying to get together now um, and collaborate to advocate for things. And we wrote letters as the organization to uh, Canadian powerlifting union about April saying, well, you've got to be fair mm-hmm. to her and, and you've got to change your policy mm-hmm. and align even with the international powerlifting, which they're not doing. And so, you know, this whole process has been so hard. I've been watching April go through this. Like this is one of the first athletes I've been able to witness who's a literally trying to stand up to a system that's stacked against her and the amount of emotional trauma that she's been going through and she just keeps speaking out she was on tucker carlson like she just keeps speaking out like because she's such a strong woman but i mean but she entered powerlifting because she had alcoholism and other things in her life she was that it helped her with her therapy and the message that 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 the cpu is basically has been sending is well we let a man use sport for his therapy social acceptance and yeah. whatever but we but we don't care if it if we're fair to april or any of the women who are are maybe also doing sports for their therapy like yeah it's definitely um a bias and um and she's been called every name in the book and uh it's been terrible but i mean we have icons women in the states has been behind april and there's a number of women that have helped you know pay for for the legal help that she's getting so it's slowly starting, but it, the amount of effort that it has taken this year wow. to move that that boulder like one inch is incredible, and it's been a it's really been insightful for me to see how much work it's going to take to push this back. Once you open the gate, yeah. how do you close it and get them all out again? It's going to be super hard. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking too about just like to to kind of continue with Stella's question about the psychological impact. It feels like an abusive relationship where it is like, especially when I was following the UPenn swimming story, the kinds of reports coming out of that women's locker room and what the young women were told, what the athletes were told was so shocking because it's like they see that this person is abusing the rules. And they're uncomfortable and they know something wrong is happening to them. And they're basically told, this is your emotional problem because you're not being yeah. accommodating enough and you have your own biases. And that's exactly what happens to somebody in an abusive relationship. It's like, I mean, gaslighting is a term used way too much in our society, but that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And it's so crazy how quickly yeah. this has come in and how few people have the ability to speak up about it. Like 
It's right. so unfair that it's put on the shoulders of the athletes themselves to like make a campaign about this when they are supposed to be focused on their sport. Like I, there's so much about it. It's so frustrating. I know. And, and basically, so when I, this, you reminded me of a moment right after, like when I first became aware of all this around 2018, I, I actually took the president of athletics Canada to, to dinner. And I basically said like, Bill, please tell me, tell me like what's why why is this happening like you know men have an advantage and and kind of hummed and hawed and kind of gave me a smirk and i said oh i see okay so i get what's happening here you're afraid our whole association is afraid that these few men male male self-appointed you know females or whatever are gonna be are gonna sue you they're gonna sue they have they're gonna you're worried about them about another male suing the association. I said, but don't you understand that there are way many, way more girls and women yeah. who are going to be disaffected that might also be suing you? So like the chances of a lawsuit are what much higher by allowing this inclusion than other way around. And he looked straight at me and said, girls wouldn't do that. <gasps> are you joking? Mm-hmm. I'm not joking. That's exactly what he said. I'm quoting exactly. He said, Girls wouldn't do that. And arguably... So, so the uh, assumption uh, is that, that we would just sit... We're supposed to sit and take it. We won't ever... Girls are nice. They it. don't sue. What? That's right. How many girls are suing? Uh, well, we have... Well, let me put it this way. Um, there are probably about four or five cases that are pending because we're just raising money for them right now. But it will happen. And I think Riley yeah. Gaines has... You know, she's going to be suing so and... I think April Hutchinson, this Canadian girl, if if it doesn't, if things don't turn around pretty quickly, she's going to sue. Uh, so we we actually have, I think we're going to be able to start doing it, but it it does again force us to raise the money, and you know puts another burden on us to try to do this. If our listeners want to contribute to these legal funds, can you yes, give sir. us like a link? We'll be sure to put it in the notes. Can you talk a little bit about how people can support that effort? I'm sure a lot of listeners will be interested. Yeah. So the the website of the international group is ICFS, so International Consortium on Female Sport. Okay. dot org. IPS, ICF Sport dot org. Uh, and there's a way to connect in that any group from any country you want to support okay so in the u.s the icons women or champion women whatever you can look at those groups and offer to donate to those individual groups like if you're in the uk you should probably donate to fair play for women right right yeah. and if you're in spain you want to do contraborado or mm-hmm. something like that mm-hmm. um so I- icons as yeah. well seem to be great well icons i get that again the usa icons has been super successful because yeah. that's the group of women who's uh, one of the women one of the founders whose daughter had to compete against leah thomas so um you know that group and they're they're very well educated women they've got a lot of capabilities in terms of getting the message out and they've been very good at um They've been doing a lot of work. I mean, if you look at what they've been able to achieve, like remember, Mm -hmm. Leah Thomas was in the NC2A final only in March of 2022, which was just a little over a year ago. And Icon's women have been representing, like they have done some incredible work. Mm -hmm. And I just, and of course they had the big conference now in Denver back in July where, you know, I presented there to some of this uh, timeline. 
We hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as we are. We just wanted to take a quick moment and say thank you to all of our listeners. Your support is the fuel that keeps this train running. So please be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast platforms. And do be sure to check out the conversations that are happening on YouTube in the comment section. We think that we have some of the smartest, most engaged viewers out there, and we really appreciate all of the interactions. Also, we produce additional bonus content every week for our listener community on Patreon. Go to widerlenspod.com and click on join our listener community. Your financial support means a lot to us. And for those of you who are in need of parenting support and resources, we each have parent coaching membership groups. So please do check those out. You can find links to both of them at widerlenspod.com or in the show notes. And of course, you can buy our book, When Kids Say They're Trans, out now in the UK and coming out very soon in the US. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. But you know, the the thing that it really, really hit me when the president, uh, when I've been was running into this sort of progressive misogyny, like somehow the girls aren't going to do this or, you know, that somehow you're supposed to be nice. Uh, you're supposed to be inclusive uh, if it's a male person wanting to be a woman and even at that expense to yourself. When I went through that, it, it may, put my mind back and was a humbling experience for me personally because <clears throat> back in the 90s, I was sent to Iran to and Muslim countries to teach my specialty was being sent by the international governing body like global world athletics I would be sent as an official lecturer into countries Islamic countries to teach Muslim women how to coach girls because it's segregated society and I remember when I, I was like the first that was a famous course actually in um, 1995 because that was the first time since the revolution, since the Ayatollahs had took over, that a Western woman was even allowed to go into Iran to uh, work with women and girls in sports. And so it was a big deal. And I just remember, like, it was a great experience for me. I mean, dealing with um, just having the women welcome me. And I was so excited because they had had no contact with Western women for 15 years. And it was amazing. So, and a lot of those women who I was coaching, teaching them how to coach girls, they had been like westernized in the seventies before the takeover. Um, but anyway, so I remember thinking, well, you know, these things happen in places like Iran and Bahrain or in whatever, but they're not going to happen in my society. Yeah. And when this thing started happening with self ID in women's sports, I thought we're not exempt. We have we have men who are just going to clap down and make new rules for us, just like what I see what I saw in Iran. And I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it's the same sort of I don't know motivation somehow there, or that I'm thinking that somehow women just need to shut up and put up with whatever rules we make, and you don't um, ask you don't ask questions. Was there a moment like when when you and first the- saw self ID impact girls' sports or? Maybe not necessarily self ID, but trans yeah. issues impact. Yeah, no, definitely us. did when it was like like the Connecticut girls and like yeah. the high school boys running against the girls in Connecticut, and actually Rachel McKinnon, the cyclist, uh, winning the so world. So you Masters were watching women. it. You were watching it. You I was yeah. I was watching while I was reading the results or like watching on like now YouTube videos and stuff, yeah. and just thinking this is real. I can't believe this is real, and you know. You know, even when you read like the the policy, I read the policy before I realized it was actually happening in reality. And I 
I had imagined, you know, like when you read a policy that says a man can come in and de uh, declare as a woman and then we're supposed to accept him as a woman and let him compete with the women. In your brain, you imagine how that's going to work, that the guy will show up and, you know, and he's going to look like a man in, in a woman's race. Like you kind of imagine this, right? But then you go online and you see it's actually happening. Mm. And, and again, I, even... Can yeah, I just tell for people who don't know? So Rachel McKinnon is a, a, a trans woman who competed and looked very manly all along. And uh, did, all along. Yeah. Did, did maybe never did, mitigated, never mitigated anything. Never mitigated, never reduced their, his testosterone. No, no, not. And, no, uh, I, I can't imagine I, they did. I presume identifies as she, her now, but certainly uh, uh, extraordinarily male looking to anybody visually. And then the Connecticut story, which I think other people won't know about, was um, two trans-identified teenage boys, as far as I remember, were running in track in the schools kind of level. Is that yeah, right? In Connect yeah, at the high school level, yeah. And uh, had they, because I want to lead this into something I want to ask you about, had they taken any puberty blockers or anything like that? <clears throat> and I know no. they competed against girls and therefore took... Yeah girls' places, arguably, on their run-up to college. So could you just yeah. say a little bit about that? Because not everybody <clears throat> will know about this. Yeah, well, Andrea Yearwood, and I forget the other name, but there was two two males who were self-identifying as as girls and running in high school competitions in the 100-meter sprints and uh, maybe 200. But what happened was that they it was self-ID, uh, they were not compelled to take any hormones or drugs or anything, but maybe they were. Who knows what they were doing? And like as far as part of their transition journey, but um, you know, more than fifteen um, state championships were taken from girls over like a oh one or two God. year period where they were able to do this, and those girls have been litigating. Now there is an example of the girls did take mm -hmm. uh, the school board to court. It was first shot down and then they relitigated and then they got back. I think it's just like in the States, you go, there's like, I don't know how many cycles of, of suing and, and, and legal uh, action you can do, but they're still, I think, in the middle of pushing, uh, trying to get some accountability for that uh, and well, compensation somehow. But I mean, their whole high school, you know, you're only in high school for a blip. Like you're there yeah. for what, one or two years and then you move on and then, you know, then your your whole trajectory is different than what it probably would have been. And the thing about being an elite sports person, you're always questioned whether you're good enough to to really go for it, to really right. focus. So right. you're easily derailed. Of course. Yeah, yeah. It, it takes. Yeah. So it really. Would. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, what's your position? Because it's it's very hot, really, in, in where we've we've been, you know, writing the gender framework for Genspect, which is mm -hmm. kind of a non-medicalized approach to gender issues and what is your approach towards sports for for children who have blocked their puberty yeah well well my first answer is you should never block puberty i mean one of my part of my phd uh well my phd project was in kinesiology but it was in the whole idea of physical anthropology where you're looking at size shape proportion composition and gross function of a growing and in my case i was looking at growing children so uh children and young, whether it's for athletes or whatever, athletics or other things, but how the body changes and over time and through puberty 
And so we, I was actually dealing with the pubertal growth spurt yeah. and, um, and looking at the different databases of African children, North American children. Like I had a lot of different databases. And I mean, that was the very idea, like if you had told me in the 90s when I was doing my PhD and I was looking at the puberty and the, the process and of course, James Tanner and the stages of puberty and, and going through, you know, Fetus into Man, like the amazing mm-hmm. book and all of that stuff. I mean, if you would have told me uh, somebody sometime in the next 20 years is going to recommend that you would actually block the pubertal um, process. Uh like we, it was so obvious. It would be yeah. so obvious that you yeah. are going to. There's critical stages. We all know this in child, mm-hmm. children's development. If you it's block critical. something at a critical stage, they don't get it back. It is not reversible, and 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 you're going to have all kinds of trouble. And we also know from other sort of longitudinal studies that you know the way the bones grow and and the bone mineral content, um, bone density, bone mer- mineral content. Um, you have, it's like money in the bank. You can put in the content and density until a certain age and then everybody goes down from there. So 30% of the amount of bone mineral content is developed as deposited during the teenage years. So if you don't, if you're gonna stop and block things like that, you're basically saying, we're gonna, we're gonna deplete your bank account by 30% before you become an adult a- in terms of bone health. So we're going to see people getting osteoporosis now by the time they're 35 or 40. But your position is don't block your puberty. But when... But but if you do... Yeah, yeah, if you do. You should never... You still should never allow a male into female competition. I don't care what age you are. Yeah. Because even before puberty, boys have 4% um, advantage, which is still huge. Okay, it's not the 10% advantage. It's huge. huge. When is that just... Say that again. Right from the beginning, like if you actually start from the very beginning of phys ed classes or measurements of like yeah. the fitness tests, and like five when they're six even five, six. Yeah. And it's an interesting phenomenon because at four, five, and six, like uh, boys can be like better than girls in the jumping, so lower body, like jumping yeah. and, and running, it's in the three to 4% zone, uh, be pre-puberty. Yeah. But throwing, they still have a huge, yeah. like 15%. Yeah. So upper body, little boys, and I know this when I coach yeah. kids, like you could ask a little boy to do a pull-up and it's no problem you ask a little girl. Yeah. So there's something about the shoulder girdle mm-hmm. and the way you have leverage mm-hmm. that the male body has a different way to leverage, uh, like if you were doing a wrestling or... So basically upper body strength for little boys is way superior. Um, and even that can be seen by five, six, and seven with ball throw, for example. But let me say this. When you when you get to age 9, 10, 11, we all know this, that sometimes little girls, if you go to a grade 6 class, grade 5 class, you'll see little girls who suddenly mature really early. Like, you'll see little girls who have breasts and, that like, they go through puberty earlier than the boys. And there's some of these classes where a little girl will look like a young woman and the boys still, like, look like they're grade 1. Like, it's... Yeah. There, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. sometimes there's a there's a difference. So what happens is at, in nine, ten, and eleven, suddenly when you measure their physical performance, suddenly it looks like there's almost no difference between boys and girls in some cases. Because, and I would say that's because the girls are now have advanced in maturity by about two two years. So that suddenly, like what you're going to see is boys are way better than girls at five, six, and seven, wow. eight, and then it it narrows. 
because the girls have suddenly jumped ahead mature in maturity. Yeah. But then and it switches. Then, then it goes back out yeah. and even more. And so a lot of these uh, studies that compare pre-puberty versus post-puberty differences in performance, they only start their measurements at 9, 10, or 11, and it looks like there's no difference between boys and girls. But that's because they don't they don't realize if they had extended the chart yeah. and measured earlier, there is an advantage, but there's just some girls that have suddenly grown, had gone through their growth spurt early, way two years earlier than the boys, and suddenly they look like they can run just as fast as boys, but that's only because of the maturity factor. Okay, so you're basically saying that even pre-puberty, it is yeah. inappropriate for puberty-blocked boys to compete against mm -hmm. girls. Okay. Absolutely. There, there are so yeah. many things I still want to ask you about, but one yeah. really quick question. A lot of times you hear in this debate that the number of male to female trans athletes trying to compete against women is very, very small. It's infinitesimal. It's not. It's a negligible. But do you know just... Do you have any numbers to ground us in what's real? No, because in Canada, in this country, you're not even allowed to ask. Okay. That's the problem. That's, it's happening a lot. I'm, I'm getting letters from parents, like my nine-year-old daughter had to compete against a boy. And uh, so like so many people write me privately, and so yet much. you never see stats on this at all because you're not supposed to ask. You're supposed to be polite. You're supposed to be accepting. And so it's almost impossible to collect those data. Like I, you just can't, it's hard to even, yeah. you know, monitor what's going on that. But see, even if it was only one, I would still say, you know, one is too many because you're disenfranchising one little girl. How many girls need to be disenfranchised before we say the rule is, you know, and also even if there was no difference between boys and girls, with which there is physically pre-puberty, why does the psychosocial um, preference of a little girl not matter? Yeah. Like, little girls don't want to compete against little boys. And yeah. they'll tell me that. Yeah. Like, why does that not matter? Yeah. Why is it just what the little boys want? Yeah. You know? And um, in my particular, after the 2018 realization, I noticed that we weren't going to get protected from above. So as a provincial gut president, I just made sure my association had a sex-based policy at home on the ground. And it has worked really well. I mean, it's been a really, um, we've had about three or four, I mean, I'm no longer president as of la uh, this past May, but but we've had people and anecdotes, uh, like where a club in one of our cities had has had one or two uh, parents come and say, can our little boy be with the girls? Uh, and they'll just say, like, our, our in our association, it's based on biological sex, sex-based, and if you're born male, you don't compete with the girls. You know, in training, we all mm -hmm. trade together, so it's completely inclusive. But when it comes to the competition, you don't you you have to stay in your own category, sex based category. And so, at the moment of entry, when they ask that question, if you have a strong guideline, you have a sex based policy yeah. eligibility, parents, it I think it's really helpful because parents can either decide, okay, then we don't put our child, our trans trans child, into that. Um, you know, sport, or they just shrugged their shoulders, and this has happened every single time. They said, "Okay," and the person just competed with the boys. Like, mm -hmm. so you, truthfully, if you're direct and you set up a strong guideline, yeah, and, and just need a policy. You, yeah, you need the policy, and I we have one. We were the only association, yeah. all of Canada, that established, you know, overtly a sex-based, explicitly sex-based category. 
and it worked out well. Could, could I ask you well. because I know people will want to know now. You can you can you can avoid the, you not avoid or you know not choose to answer it. Have you have yeah. you any thoughts of how the Castor Semenya case should have evolved or could have evolved? Yes, they should have just said right from the beginning. When we did, at they what did, point? You know what I mean? At the two thousand and six or seven when they were for, like the first time that Castor Semenya entered as a junior athlete at a national and a world competition. Uh, there has to be a screening even at that point. So and you're I, saying I think a swab that they test. did it, a swab test or something, but they, they didn't do the swab test. But that when it was reported, oh dear, like this looks like it's a boy. Like people were privately, as far as I could tell from certain stories inside the sport, uh, you know, obviously there was a medical exam eventually done, <clears throat> and they knew. Semenya was oh, be- XY. Yeah, we better tell people who don't know. So, you know, for people who aren't sporty. Castor Semenya is a South African born um, intersex uh, with a, a, a like a, you know, difference in sexual development. Male XY, but had testes internally. They had not descended. So had the ability to, to develop, to produce testosterone, but did have, you know, obviously ambiguous genitalia. So it wasn't like the people in the village thought Castor Semenya was a boat, was a girl, sorry, yeah. female. Uh, but through, you know, was always presenting somewhat male. And then during puberty, you got a very strong male type body uh, that was su- succeeding in female sport. Now, the, here's the interesting thing. And yeah. I've spent time working on the African yeah. continent. When I was collecting data for my PhD thesis and measuring children in schools in Nigeria, um, it was very clear. And people had told, like all the experts in, in on the ground, the Nigerian principals would tell me that, the, especially in the villages, because um, uh, part of my data collection sheet had the birth date, like you get your birth date. Yeah. And um, 60% of children in rural Africa don't have a birth certificate and don't have a birth date. Um, you have to like, so they're not tested. So what I'm saying is in North American Europe, we would be able to flag a DSD immediately and Mm -hmm. deal with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The problem with the developing countries, whether it's India, Africa, whatever, is most of them never get a medical screening of any type. And and a lot of times, even their date of birth is not really recorded. Like it's, it's like, oh, they were born in the year when there was that rain and that Mm. fall, that season. So then you have to kind of figure out sort of within three months, two or three months, that's that was their date of birth. Some of them. Some of them have, like a lot of them have now because we have phones. This has changed yeah. Africa. Like now they have phones. They know the date. They know the time. They can put it. Like they'll know because of photos and whatever. But in those days, in the 90s, they didn't. And so 90s and 2000s, if you were born in Africa and you had a DSD, there wouldn't. There's no way that that would ever be known because you probably haven't seen a doctor to and do with, that. And with Castor, they figured it out in the teenage years. They kind of yeah. So they they so Castor just went in into the women's competition, looked like a phenomenal athlete for a female in South Africa. Was on immediately within almost less than a year of starting track was already a world you know best in the junior level, and I mean just based on appearance too i mean you could pretty well surmise that there was something going on there was a extra extraordinary advantage hmm. and they did do some testing and they did know 
that caster was XYDSD right from the beginning. Whoa. If they would have had a strong policy from the beginning, all of this, yeah. all of that stuff wouldn't have happened. But the problem is they were they didn't want to appear to be racist, which is the problem with it's inherent in how this happens because they will be from another country, from a developing country because they didn't get screened. And so and then it's only, up to the sport not, to screen them. Not only that, in Helen Joyce's book as well, she, she she's brilliant. Some of the data in that book is so phenomenal. Yeah. She did say that in certain pockets and certain areas around the world, intersex DSDs yeah. is much yeah. higher than others. Oh, yeah. Uh, it can be there, too. Th- yeah. Yeah. And that that's also an issue that needs to be kind of highlighted. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's it, but that's plays out on the global stage yeah. in that the people who should be putting in the guidelines and the gatekeeping. Now, they don't want to be appearing to be racist exactly. or culturally insensitive. And so that's again. But that what they don't understand is that having somebody like Castor Savinia in with the women, XY DSD male in with the women, it's not like they were. It's not like you're only protecting white people or white women. I mean, it was women of all different racial groups who were being um, basically discriminated against. And the truth is, this also happens. Um, you know, now I went to the uh, Icons, um, oh, yeah. the NC2A convention with Icons in January of this year. And one of the high school, uh, this turns my attention to what you say, what, you know, you were going to ask me what I say to you, but there was a young woman of university age who instantly, like, she flipped in front of me, like it was an interesting experience because... We, we had a booth at the convention and we were talking, she and our sister were there and they were clearly, you know, obviously sensitive about the trans issue and and also um, were really keen on inclusivity and fairness. And I said, well, okay, do you agree that there's two sexes? We all start with two sexes. You can't be trans unless you're born one sex and you want to see, you know, so we all start in a sort of a binary situation and then people have different expressions and maybe lots of different you know, ways to, to have a gender expression, whatever. And I said, but then take me, just let's go through this experiment. So we know that there are females who want to identify as men or not non-binary, and there are males who want to identify as women. And basically, so we have two types of trans. We have the males who identify as women and females who identify as men. These ones stay in women's sports. So we're already, we're already inclusive. Like mm-hmm. the, the ones who are female, but they mm-hmm. identify as men, they just compete as female and they know that they shouldn't be taking drugs. Otherwise, they're going to be doping. There's going to be doping control. So if you have these ones who are male and now identify as women, they come over. They're actually dis- discriminating even against the females who are trans. Yeah. So I said, it's not it's not about trans or not trans. It's like, are we going to discriminate against all types yeah. of female people? It's about fairness. And 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 so she says, "Oh, like she she stopped for a minute. She turned her back to me, like she just turns around. Mm-hmm. And she goes, wait. And she looked at me. She goes, so this is just the same old men making women do what they want. <laughs> and I'm like, well, males like who want to have an advantage? Like Certain I mean, type of guy. you know, the females aren't looking for like can't get advantage going the other way. So we're already accepting trans who are female born. Mm. And and that's the thing. Like, you know, it's not discriminating at all as if we keep them separate. 
Well, Linda, you know, this brings up something that I'd like to touch on with you in our dinner party conversations, because there was an interesting post in, in the Washington Post about a non-binary athletes and using testosterone. So I'd love to take it over there. Um, before we say goodbye to our general audience, of course, we want to link your book. We want to link all of the organizations that you mentioned. Is there anywhere else listeners should go to find more information about you and your work? Um, well, I am Coach Blade on Twitter, and I put a lot of material there. Okay, um, knocking it out of the, the book park. Is, and if you, <laughs> if you're, pun um, intended, and, <laughs> exactly. And if you're um, looking for, there's a lot of podcasts and articles I've written, and actually, there's also this latest one. I have a chapter, and this is a new book coming out. Um, wow, it's by the uh, the WDI Women's Rights Gender Wrongs. Great. I have a chapter in there. Like there's a there's a new book that's come out. Oh, that's great. And so I've just written chapters, articles in different places. I will say that in terms of the conference coming up next week, I didn't want to go through like the same kind of maybe, well, I did want to cover the history, the historical record and journey briefly, but it occurred to me, I was looking at uh, just the other day, looking at thing about the seven stages of grief. Oh yeah. yeah. And you know how, and everything I've gone through in this journey is one of those seven stages. So basically the seven stages of reclamation of women's sports literally Hmm. Um, I mean, it's just too, you know, it's like the one stage, this is how I felt and that's how it works in sports and like feeling shock, you know, it's a shock. And then like all through, and I I just kind of think about, I think it might be worth going through, like just how, how a person in my position, like of authority, you know, and as a woman in sport, how you feel like grief that this has happened. It's like, yeah. changes your whole worldview of how, how you thought of women in sport and the perception of the status of women in oh sport. Yeah. And then just how it goes through like the stages of grief and how to rebuild. Cause the last few stages of, of grief are basically just how you reconstruct and work through it. And then how do you work towards acceptance in the future? And then, then in my case, how do we, well, how are we going to change everything? How are we going to be effective going forward and change things back? So yeah. they, so we can sort of um, turn this around, and so that's pretty much what I'm going to be covering. I think next that's week, amazing. and sort of, you know, well, yeah. this episode is going to be coming out on the third, which is right before the conference. Right before, really okay. good. If anyone listening yeah. is interested in yeah. what Coach Blade has to say, will tune into the conference, whether you're there in person. Yeah, you can get lo- live. You can get live streaming, and yeah, be, is that live streaming? Yeah, so it's good. gonna be live so streamed and then, that. Yeah, and afterwards as well, it'll yeah. be available on YouTube. Yeah, I, I think you're gonna be such an addition. You're such a really brilliant representative of why <laughs> sports you. people who are sports people they're fair. That's the big thing. They're into fairness usually. Yeah, I mean, we want really, to be. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. the thing. That's a whole purpose. I mean, yeah. it, it isn't sport if it isn't fair. If it's that's why it's my book sporting. was called Unsporting. Because if, if it's not fair, it's not even sport anymore. It's just like maybe social affirmation or something. But, you know, it has to be fair if it's going to be sports. You're and right. that's the point. You're right. That's amazing, Linda. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. 
Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.